This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, providing one-on-one comprehensive physical and occupational therapy services, including women's health, chronic pain treatment, TMJ, and more, with four locations in Fox Point, Grafton, Brookfield, and McGuanago, Wisconsin. More information at freedompt.com. Hi, everyone. This is Brady Ament and Michael Karaginis. Uh, we're the hosts of the Freedom Talks podcast, and uh, we're going to get right into it, into introducing kind of ourselves and uh, how we want this uh, podcast to go, um, what we want to provide to you, the listeners. Uh, so Mike Karaginis is a uh, renowned TMJ therapist uh, in the U.S. and in Canada, and um, we're here to provide insight into kind of the healthcare world and give you a perspective from kind of the PTs um, on how, how the industry is going, how we see how, how our relationships differ with different healthcare providers. Um, and in the future, we hope to get other healthcare providers on the podcast and have an open and honest conversation uh, to give you guys a little bit more insight as to um, what's the background behind the care you're receiving. Um, so I, I'm going to introduce. I'm going to let Mike introduce himself and um, kind of give his background. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, Brady and Molly over at the Freedom Shop. Thank you for helping orchestrate and and uh, putting together our very first podcast. Um, bear with us, as I'm sure. Uh, there will be some bumps and bruises along the way while we figure out how to best uh, deliver some of the messages and the content we'd like to deliver. Um, but as uh, Brady had indicated, yes, uh, I've uh, been a physical therapist now for 30 years. It's hard to believe. I'm not sure where the time has gone. Uh, over the course of my career, uh, I guess I consider myself a very heavily based manual uh, physical therapist, uh, really looking to treat kind of the whole body from head to toe. And then about 15 years ago, I uh, had the fortunate opportunity through the University of St. Augustine uh, to really branch out uh, away from just uh, spinal uh, treatment into TMJ or temporal mandibular disorders, craniofacial pain, uh, oral facial pain uh, treatment, evaluation and treatment approach uh, with significant instruction uh, from Dr. Mariano Roccobato, uh, but then really a very eclectic uh, and progressive uh, treatment uh, by numerous individuals now who've sort of molded and helped mentor me along the way. So uh, I'm very excited to just uh, be a part of this process, be a part of healthcare, um, uh, and of course, uh, as the owner of Freedom Physical Therapy Services, very excited to work with such amazing uh, therapists and uh, staff members to really provide top-notch quality care and compassionate care hopefully in the way that most of the world thinks uh, healthcare should be delivered. Awesome. Um, so, you know, you can, you can expect honest conversations between uh, healthcare providers and PTs, and um, we hope to, to bring a, an exciting dialogue um, to the field and uh, to you, the listener. So the first thing we're going we're gonna to get to is we're going to... Uh, talk about something topical. Um, 
maybe it's a research paper that came out or maybe it's an interesting study that came out. Uh, but today, in light of uh, the Bucks uh, finally winning a uh, first-round playoff round, we're going to do a little box talk. Um, and we're, we're going to keep this uh, PT-related. So we want to talk about Malcolm Brogdon, who's expected to be back uh, with the team um, at the beginning of next week or at the end of next week. They were hoping that he was going to be able to be back for the second round of the playoffs. Um, he had a slight plantar fasciitis tear. Um, and I want to go uh, through with Mike what um, – what what uh, what is the purpose of the plantar fascia and um, how why why is it such an important or why is it such a devastating injury that he had? Uh, all right, Brady. So yes, so plantar fasciitis um, or the plantar fascia itself, uh, for those who may or may not know, of course, you know, runs along the bottom of our foot and really is very supportive in helping provide it, uh, an arch uh, to our foot but also absorb uh, sort of the compression or spring loading as we uh, put our foot on the ground. Uh, and what's very unfortunate about it for those of you that have probably suffered from it and can attest to even a plantar fascial, uh, you know, strain or tenderness around uh, the inside uh, aspect of your heel bone uh, can be very, very painful, uh, you know, to the point where walking and things of that nature, something as benign as walking can be very painful. So imagine, right, having to run up and down the court uh, could be a real, uh, a real issue. And then, of course, to suffer a partial tear would explain maybe the length of and the necessary time for recovery. You figure most soft tissue injuries like plantar fasciitis may be left unattended three to six weeks, might resolve on its own. Now you suffer a small tear, and that could delay things maybe out six to eight weeks. Uh, so the interesting thing would just be to know, was, was there any biomechanical cause for this? You know, was it purely just overuse and the aggressive nature and the stopping and starting uh, on the basketball court? Or is there something else subtly going on, weakness uh, maybe in his hip that's contributing to reduced biomechanics? Uh, significant tightness maybe in his hamstrings or his calf or better known as the gastroxoleus complex uh, all the way down. Uh, so it'd be interesting, uh, obviously without evaluating him, uh, you know, we don't have any firsthand knowledge uh, of exactly what might have contributed to, uh, to this uh, situation for him. But certainly, nonetheless, it can be very, very painful, uh, especially at the level that they're playing. So from what I understand, he was, he was playing through a little bit of pain during this season um, and continued to play through the pain, and eventually I think the, his pain threshold just was crossed, and he ended up getting uh, uh, imaging done, and that's how they found out about the tear. And it was kind of unfortunate because they were, you know, he was on a roll. He was helping them uh, secure the, the one overall seed in the, in the NBA playoffs. And um, I think, can you, can you speak to how – how you should listen to your body when something like that is going on? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, kind of the mantra we have here at Freedom anyway is, you know, small problem, small fix. Uh, so my assumption would be obviously with the talent and the staff and the healthcare people he has around him that they were certainly probably attentive to some of the early signs of it. Uh, but again, I think the uh, basketball is just a very uh, intense stop and start uh, compressive loading, you know, throughout the lower extremities, the knees, the foot, the ankle, and of course the plantar fascial area, 
that I suspect, um, even with appropriate intervention, as long as he was going to continue to play at the level he was playing, it was probably inevitable that there might have been, you know, some more extensive damage done. Uh, so, um, you know, I think the real challenge going forward will be to help uh, him avoid more of a chronic situation at this point. So I trust there will be, you know, some really good significant uh, soft tissue work done throughout the area, especially if there's been tearing. I'm a firm believer uh, that you need to make sure any scar tissue that would fill in there, even at the microscopic level, uh, gets worked on. Uh, through a lot of good deep tissue work, cross-friction work to help the f uh, torn fibers realign and so that their tensile, st tensile strength uh, can be more uh, substantial and stronger going forward with less chance for reoccurrence and certainly more tolerant to uh, the uh, continued playing of, of basketball. And I'm sure they, they must be looking at uh, any uh, tightness he might have throughout that whole lower extremity and again as I mentioned earlier possibly weakness throughout the hip area or his core in general and possibly assess his footwear. Uh, hard to know uh, to what degree that might be playing a role uh, as well for him. Um, so I did want to get into um, he's, he's going to come back and obviously they want they want him to come back sooner rather than later. They're going to play the Boston Celtics uh, in the next round. Um, Boston kind of struggled earlier in the season, but um, is kind of hitting their stride at the right time. They um, they they handily took care of Indiana in their first round matchup. What's what's the dangers of him returning too soon? Is this an injury that if if he returns too soon he'll be okay, or is it something that they need to really be careful with? Well, you know, when you're talking a high-caliber athlete uh, like, like he is, um, you know, generally I think they tend to have a higher pain tolerance than most. So I think you at least need to be mindful of the fact that, um, that he might be able to work through things that, let's say, some of us, you know, average folks might not be able to. Um, so I think uh, there is a possibility that if he's also not in tune with his body and being open and honest with his healthcare team, uh, that, you know, again, I, I'd just be more concerned it would be uh, a chronic, become a chronic situation that doesn't let him play at 100% capacity. Maybe he can play at 70 or 80, which, you know what, maybe that's good enough to help the Bucks. Uh, be successful until the season is over, and then he's able to totally convalesce and, and heal the situation. So, yeah, I think there's always the concern for, uh, you know, uh, rupturing it completely and even becoming more debilitated by it. But I, I would think, uh, you know, his healthcare team is certainly keeping a close eye on him and making sure that he has a safe and, and uh, as close to full recovery as possible. Yeah, I think there's that old school mantra of like, need to get back as soon as possible, need to help your team, and, and I completely understand that from, from his perspective, but it, it does seem like, especially with soft tissue injuries, that it, it, it could really be debilitating if he comes back too soon. Absolutely, and, and you know, and I think sometimes we forget, you know, we, we joke about the industrial worker, right, that, that, you know, a lot of the hard labor and work many people do out there have their own set of uh, sort of uh, acute, m you know, maybe minimal injuries that can become chronic, and yet, right, uh, we're all getting sort of paid at the end of the day to uh, provide a service or uh, provide care or 
uh, get a product out there or obviously play at the professional level. So I think you have to find that balance of also the expectations and, and just some of the nature of what goes along with each of our occupations. And in this case, you know, especially basketball, foot injuries, ankle, knee, uh, you know, are some areas that are certainly uh, at risk. So when a, when a patient comes in with something like this, whether it's um, a soft tissue injury to another area of the body, uh, what are you educating them on in terms of like, what's the difference between having a tendon and ligament injury compared to um, something that's musculoskeletal um, in nature? Uh, it's, it's a great question. So, you know, part of it has to do with the, uh, the different elastic properties of the tissue. You know, for example, a ligament, right, uh, <clears throat> when that has been stretched or overstretched or chronically stretched, it, it unfortunately doesn't retighten on its own accord. So you do the best you can to allow the second, secondary stabilizers to help support things and then through various different exercises and programs, neuromuscular control, try to help that joint that might have been uh, disrupted from ligament damage improve better. When it comes to things uh, like uh, muscle, uh, tendon, or the fascial area, um, you know, those can be a little bit more uh, variable. And I, I think a lot, in my opinion anyway, has to do with when there's been disruption to that tissue, either stretching or microscopic tearing, I think some of the discomfort that really lingers long-term, again, is that uh, potential deep scar tissue that will fill in. And when it's not appropriately addressed and treated, every time they move or tug on that tissue, um, I think it contributes to, to uh, uh, longer discomfort. I, I try to explain to patients, you know, when you think of a, a scar, let's even just say a simple cut, when that tissue heals, uh, if you don't do some intervention in there, that tissue will sort of heal like a spider web. There'll be lots of cross fibers, different directions of the scar that can form. And, you know, when you do appropriate soft tissue work to those areas, uh, you can try and get that, uh, so to speak, uh, spider web appearance. You can allow that scar tissue or those uh, to, to align more uh, parallel, in parallel lines, and as a result, um, reduce the cross-bridging or that tugging on those sensitive scar tissue, and, and then it also improve the tensile strength. So I, I think, you know, there's also the mindset of just how these things will heal and maybe what's the most appropriate intervention, whether it's muscle, tendon, or ligament, or fascia. Um, so another thing I want to touch on, uh, what, is, what is he looking at? You mentioned that... Um, it might have been caused by weak hamstrings or tight hamstrings or something um, in the gluteal muscles. How is that affected? How, um, how, how are his biomechanics affected? Maybe when he comes back, if he's favoring one side or the other, um, or, or how can he expect his body to kind of bounce back from this? Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, well, I'm going to make the assumption that uh, as this occurred, and certain, certainly once it... Uh, uh, got progressively worse, uh, that uh, his healthcare team has done a really thorough assessment of sort of the length tension relationship of the muscles and tissues in his lower extremity, even his spinal area, his pelvis, um, and looking uh, systematically through right manual muscle testing, uh, which muscles might be weak um, or, or actually, you know, maybe uh, or, or just imbalanced. So I'd like to think during this time of convalescence, while he might not be on the court, 
I'm quite positive they're doing an extensive amount of uh, stretching and strengthening and proprioceptive work uh, to allow him to come back and function even better than before would be my expectation. Do you think there's any difference between <clears throat> if we saw one of these patients in the clinic that isn't a professional athlete, where would they be in terms of their progression on training regimens um, compared to what he's doing now? Uh, well, I think that's, that's always a great topic of, of discussion, right? Because, you know, in, in, in the healthcare world, uh, most of us could not afford, let's say, daily treatment and daily intervention. So when you're talking a high-end athlete or professional athlete, uh, they're getting significant attention each and every day, mm -hmm. you know, anywhere probably from an hour to two to three hours, right? So uh, I think uh, you can't make tissue heal any faster than it wants to heal. So I think the course or length of time to feel better and recovery uh, could potentially be the same. But I think, uh, you know, also, uh, you know, let's say if someone happens to be a sedentary worker, uh, you know, uh, working at a desk most of their day, you know, the, I think the, the change in the care will be if they don't have any expectations to go back to running or jumping or, you know, stopping and starting or sprinting, that you will probably tailor their exercise regimen uh, accordingly. So they're not going to maybe put the same demands on that foot uh, as he is, as he's going to. So uh, again, I just think you know there, there's you know the uh, there's just you know the average consumer maybe right could afford one, two, maybe at most three times a week to be in for physical therapy. Uh, so again, I just think uh, the the uh, the quality of attention he's getting is you know obviously uh, more intense and uh, probably more. Uh, uh, focused than what you can maybe get traditionally uh, outside of those services. All right. Well, we wish the Bucks good luck in the playoffs, and we're going to take a break uh, to hear from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, providing exceptional one-to-one hands-on care to the greater Milwaukee area for over 25 years. Our physical and occupational therapists prepare custom plans for your condition to relieve pain and improve performance. Allow us to help you enjoy more freedom at freedompt.com. All right, for our second segment of, of the show, um, we're always going to try to cover our treatment topic, and today's topic, we're going to talk about trigeminal neuralgia. Um, if, if you guys don't know what trigeminal neuralgia is, uh, Mike's going to come in here and explain what it is? Well, thank you, Brady. I will do my, do my best. Um, so yes, so trigeminal neuralgia, or uh, maybe sometimes people are very familiar with the term tic de la rue, um, is, it can be considered certainly one of the most painful afflictions known to the medical practice. Uh, sometimes has been also labeled as the suicide disorder by uh, medical science. Uh, in general, it is very sharp shooting, uh, lancinating, electrical type uh, pain and impulses that you can feel uh, in the facial area, uh, usually um, uh, on one side of the uh, face uh, versus uh, bilateral. Um, and it stems from uh, one of the cranial nerves, particularly the trigeminal uh, nerve. And we have different branches uh, that can sort of control I guess the easiest way to describe it, since uh, we can't see each other, is 
uh, possibly um, uh, along the forehead area or the cheekbone or your lower, the lower angle of your uh, jawbone would sort of be the traditional three divisions of the trigeminal nerve that someone could feel a very intense uh, lancinating uh, pain. It can last for seconds uh, or up to about two minutes. Um, that would be considered sort of trigeminal or type 1. Uh, there's a type 2, which might be more uh, of an achy uh, sensation, a little bit longer, prolonged amount of time. Um, but, uh, and unfortunately, there's no particular test. I mean, obviously, you need to go through in a proper evaluation and neurological workup, um, but a lot of it really relies on patient subjective uh, information uh, as to uh, how they're describing their symptoms versus other temporomandibular disorders or facial pain disorders that we might be thinking about. So, um, I was doing a, a search uh, yesterday trying to prepare a little bit. Uh, I'm not a PT, um, so I don't have the expertise you do. But I was trying to just do a, a general search, Google search for trigeminal neuralgia. And, um, you know, the first hits were Mayo Clinic, uh, some of the top hospitals in the U.S. They all have articles about trigeminal neuralgia. Um, what are some of the interventions? Uh, what are the, some, some of the treatment options? Who it affects? That, that sort of thing. Um, and it took me a while. It was like the third or fourth page before I even hit an article that said that physical therapy could be a possible intervention. And um, I obviously get to see every day what we do here, and I get to be around uh, you and some of the other TMJ specialists that we have at the clinic, and I see all the amazing work that you guys do for people and, and people that just come in and say, um, I've been in pain for forever, and um, I can't believe that um, this worked and that um, I feel so much better and I didn't have to have surgery and I'm off drugs and, and that sort of thing. Um, but the first interventions that you see online are, here's the list of drugs that you can take that can possibly help you out. And then if that doesn't work, here are the list of possible um, surgeries that you can have. Um, and I guess I, I don't know because I've never experienced it, but if you go to your doctor, are they telling you like these are the only options or is, is PT coming up in the conversation? Well, uh, it's a great question. Uh, I would say, in general, even, um, trigeminal neuralgia aside, um, uh, I think there are just so few physical therapists uh, in the U.S. and abroad uh, that have taken the additional training to treat uh, trigem or, uh, temporal mandibular disorders, much less uh, trigeminal uh, neuralgia-related uh, disorders. So I think part of that is the problem. Um, you know, it, it requires those of us that are doing this to continue to get out into the communities and the physicians and help educate them on some of the impact uh, that we could possibly have. Uh, but I, as I try to explain to patients in general, whether it's, you know, a, a, a knee problem, uh, a neck problem, or trigeminal neuralgia, right, depending on what healthcare professional you see, they're sort of limited by the tools in their toolbox. So. Um, and, and I mean this in no means disrespect to any other healthcare professionals, right? But if you go see a physician, for example, uh, and let's say they're non-surgical, you know, their options are, are really going to be to possibly provide some of the different medications that might be able to help. 
uh, maybe pass you on to a specialist in case uh, surgery was necessary. Possibly do some imaging, right? Certainly make sure there's no, uh, you know, any, God forbid, any tumors or any sev more severe condition that's contributing to this. Um, but I would say physical therapy is probably, uh, certainly is not well known for uh, the treatment of trigeminal neuralgia. And of course, there's even less research to indicate uh, any of the things that we might be able to contribute. Uh, when you do come to physical therapy, and particularly, let's say, you know, our clinic or others uh, throughout the U.S. that have done some extensive training, I think that's where our expertise can come into play, right? So, for example, we can't order medication, and we certainly can't do surgery. At least I haven't found anybody willing to be a guinea pig to let me experiment. Uh, but, um, you know, so we're really forced to, you know, kind of use our minds and our hands and the knowledge we've attained over the years on how to manage this. So... Uh, I think, because, uh, you know, in the cases that, you know, I've personally seen, uh, I, I would be very remiss to tell people we can fully resolve their symptoms. What I tend to see is a significant reduction in the frequency that they occur and the severity uh, that they occur. And I had, you know, written a blog about this on my uh, treatingtmj.com website some time ago, and it, it continues to seem to spark a lot of interest. But, you know, from a physical therapy's perspective, uh, there's things that we can do to help with desensitization because uh, generally um, um, for people who have uh, trigeminal uh, neuralgia going on, right, simple things that we might uh, take, for, uh, take for granted um, can be very uh, uncomfortable for them. For example, just subtle vibration uh, might cause uh, a repro reproduction of their symptoms or maybe when they're shaving or just washing their face or applying makeup, brushing teeth, even eating, drinking, talking, um, and ironically, even being opposed to wind. Some of those things, uh, because the nerve, the trigeminal nerve has now become, as we call, so sensitized or easily agitated, those subtle little things can trigger the unfortunate uh, uh, attacks, the sharp lancinating uh, discomfort that patients can have. Uh, so one of our goals is to try and help them manage that sensitivity, try to downregulate uh, the nervous system uh, to, to ease with that. Um, I, I think, too, there's, uh, you know, some various protocols out there that people have tried with different types of uh, electrical stimulation to try and, um, again, uh, stimulate the nervous system and try and alter it. Just put an input in that might change the output. That's the easiest way for me to describe to patients when I'm working on them, what am I trying to do? I'm, I'm trying to provide an input that possibly will... Uh, change, reduce, eliminate would be wonderful, the output or the experience that they're, they're having. Um, also very fortunate, a few years back, uh, we have coming to the U.S. Uh, uh, Dr. Harry Von Picards. And, uh, you know, his, his, he just has a very extensive neurological approach to treating head, neck, and face pain in general. And it's, it's interesting, while I had a lot of these tools... Uh, over the course of my 30 years of being trained, I never thought of putting them together in the manner uh, that he uh, and his team are instructing some of us in the U.S. that have had the good fortune of being trained by him and going through his program. Uh, so uh, there, are, there are areas where our nerve tissue can become entrapped, um, either through soft tissue structures around the head, neck, and face, or in the trigeminal nerve area, uh, as it courses from the brain stem, um, there are little, let's say, foramen or little holes that these 
cranial nerves can exit around our skull bones. And sometimes by just providing the necessary manual pressure onto the various cranial or facial bones, you can possibly just reduce some compression, irritation to that nerve structure, or possibly create just a little bit more space so there's less compression and irritation. And you know, the, the unknown is just the laying on of hands and by creating a different stimulus that can alter the symptoms that they're having can have a huge impact. So I think that's where physical therapy can certainly help, but unfortunately, there's not a lot of us out there that do it. And, um, and even less, I think, of the general public and, and the healthcare system is aware we have the ability to help with these situations. So I guess if, if you're someone who's really struggling with this, and it sounds like even with drugs, even with a surgery, even with PT, this is something that might not go away for somebody permanently. Um, it's something you're going to have to manage. Correct. I think that, yes. Yeah, go ahead, sir. How, how, how am I supposed to look for care if I'm someone struggling with this? Uh, okay, that's a, that's a great question. Um, uh, well, you know, you certainly ha have the ability to, to reach out to us, and uh, depending where you live, um, you know, we will do the best part we can at, you know, uh, Freedom Physical Therapy to uh, help direct you to someone in your area that might have an expertise in craniofacial pain, oral facial pain. Um, I happen to belong to the American Academy of Oral Facial Pain. Uh, I don't have the website directly in front of me, but I believe if you go to aaop.org, that will take you to our website where there's a directory uh, that will uh, link you to various uh, dental health professionals that have a substantial amount of training in oral facial pain, many of which are board certified. Um, and then there's also, it's the only uh, academy of oral facial pain that allows physical therapists, I believe there's now about 40 of us uh, that have special credentials, uh, CCTT credentials. Um, to indicate we've done, you know, sort of above and beyond traditional training and certainly an expertise in head, neck, and face disorders uh, or trigeminal neuralgia. So that would be an area uh, to look into. Um, you know, uh, and I think, you know, the web is interesting. You have to be very careful, right, because there's also a lot of misinformation. I think there's a lot of scary information. So I guess the biggest piece of advice I'd also like to give people is I feel... Uh, during most, many of our treatments, especially when someone is dealing with something as severe as trigeminal neuralgia or any type of chronic disorder, there's a lot of fear and anxiety of the unknown. So I feel like I have to spend a great deal of time helping to downregulate just the fear and the anxiety with so much misinformation that's out there. And that doesn't help your system. All that does is sort of jack things up and intensify and worsen things or possibly, right, starts to play with your psyche. Uh, and then, you know, now we're dealing maybe with some form of depression affiliated with this. Uh, your sleep might uh, become disturbed, and we know sleep is a huge, uh, you know, issue for many people. Uh, but sleep is necessary for proper rest, recuperation, and just general well-being. So, um, so, you know, I think that would be a place to start. Um, uh, and if we can help direct that, we gladly will. We'll, we'll, link, uh, we'll link some of the directories that you send me uh, in the description for the podcast. Um, <clears throat> we're just trying to, I think, um, spread the word about some of the treatments that you can do that are conservative in nature and that um, you can try before really attacking the big 
surgeries or getting hooked on meds, that kind of thing. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I to me, I, I, I really struggle. You know, I, I don't understand why there aren't more opportunities for people to, to per, per, you know, proceed with conservative care. Um, you know, as I tell people, I guess one, to me one of the beauties of physical therapy is, you know, while I might occasionally hurt someone, um, it's very rare to ever do harm. Uh, permanent harm, right? So I mean, yes, maybe in our first few sessions together, we're going to flare things up. We might make you a little bit worse, but at least we know we can affect a change. And I think if we can affect a change, either for the worse or better, then that means that possibly uh, our intervention or mode of intervention, if we can get the right formula, which again also is very unique for each individual. I, you know, there is no cookie cutter response. And again, with our healthcare system, it is so frustrating to think that insurances think in three, four, five, six visits, uh, you're gonna be fixed with this situation uh, and that there's a, a specific protocol to follow because we're all unique human beings. We all have different life experiences, different emotional experiences to pain. Um, you know, who knows what our social structure and our social support is. All those things can affect our overall uh, outcome. So yeah, I think, uh, trying to get in some into somebody's uh, good manual hands, and you know what? That might be a com again a combination. Not you know, it's a multidisciplinary thing. Finding a you know, first hopefully your physician can help uh, at least acknowledge what might be going on. Maybe finding a really good uh, dentist uh, with a specialty in TMD who hopefully will also know a good physical therapist with this experience. Uh, but we'll collaborate too with some great massage therapists. Acupuncture is a worthwhile try. So again, uh, I think there's a, a great opportunity to make a significant improvement uh, before uh, undergoing fairly substantial uh, surgery. So at the very least, it sounds like there's hope for those that are suffering from this. So Abs absolutely. That's, that's a good thing. Yep, I think uh, hope is very important, yes. All right. Well, uh, we're going to wrap it up today. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to to email info at treatingtmj.com and we'll try to answer any questions that you might have. And um, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Day. Yep, appreciate it. And look forward to your uh, feedback and responses. This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, an independent provider of comprehensive physical and occupational therapy services. No matter how challenging your issues, if other treatments have failed, we are determined to help you heal, starting with the very first visit. Four convenient locations in the Milwaukee area. More information at freedompt.com.